the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same regions, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good evening. Thank you for being here. Will you please pray with me? Father, do ask now as we come to your word, as we meditate upon your word, that you would be with us this holy hour, this moment where we anticipate and prepare for all the gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd be with us and near us, and by your spirit, that you might illuminate our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are, almost at midnight, on the doorstep of that transition when Advent becomes Christmas, that hopeful moment between our anticipation and the realization of what we've been waiting for. It's a sacred moment in some sense. Certainly in this evening, in a place like this, it's a poetic moment. And the clock turns and something real comes into our life that we've been wanting. When I was a young kid during Christmas, I felt like all the decorations were slightly campy. I don't know if this was your experience. It all felt very Christmas vacation to me, all the Christmas decorations. All of the lights were colorful and big bulbs, and there were big, aggressive Christmas decorations in everybody's home, stuff that almost hurt your eyes to look at. I think in in a lot of ways, Christmas decoration has changed. Now it's all Chip and Joanna Gaines stuff. It's classy Christmas is like what I like to call it. Everything's nice and white and clean and a little doled out and wooden colors. It's not in your face. It's sort of in the background as if if you didn't know it was Christmas, you might not even realize it was decorated for Christmas. That's what it seems like. But I've noticed that there's something that no matter where the decorations go throughout the different styles of Christmas, there's one thing that always seems to remain. It's the Christmas village. You know what I'm talking about. These homes decorated for Christmas 
collectible homes that it seems like every Colorado town has an entire store dedicated to you just going and purchasing these collectible Christmas homes. And you can't really pinpoint, I think, looking at these Christmas villages, where the time is. Is it Dickens? Is it the 1950s? Is it right here? Is it right now? Is it a big town? Is it a small town? You don't really know. But there are a few things that you know. It's always snowing. That's the first thing you know. And there's always warm light coming from inside the house. And you can't pinpoint exactly where the joy is, but it's always sort of there, around the house, in the house, in the street, somewhere lurking around. And of course, everyone in this village has a house, and no one is missing from the community. There are no frowns. Of course, there isn't any crime. Certainly, there's no homeless people. And everything seems safe. Maybe right. And of course, we know that life isn't really like this at all, except that we want it to be. And all of us sort of, I think, believe that it could be if we just kept trying a little harder, if we just kept looking a little deeper. I think that's why we invest so much in this time of the year, why we have such high expectations for it and for what it's supposed to do for us and for our family and for our relationships. We actually want this time of the year to be that perfect Christmas village. Of course, it always disappoints. But I think that our texts this evening present us with a question that's related to those Christmas villages, which is really, what are we looking for? What do we really want this time of the year? What do we want? And of course, how do we get it? So that's the questions for this evening. Two questions. What do we really want? And how do we get it? There's another, sticking to Christmas decoration themes, there's another thing that you see all the time during this time of the year that does not apply to any other holiday, any other festival at any time of the year, at any place, anywhere. It's just, during Christmas, there are single words put into people's front lawns and on their mantelpieces. Not sentences, not statements, not words, nothing but just one single individual word. Joy, merry, bright, peace. It's as if to say, if I said more than this, it would be to say too much. I don't want to tell you about joy. I don't want to tell you about peace. I just want you to you know, peace, joy. And I think, though, that that is actually in some strange way actually right. I think at this time of the year, what we are actually looking for is too abstract to name, sort of like these Christmas villages. We don't just want a feeling of joy and peace. We want the thing itself to grab it and hold it in our hands, whatever joy and peace actually are, We want it in our life. We want it in our very hands. And we want it now. The word peace, I'm sure you probably heard in our reading from the Old Testament, of course, the New Testament. They show up all throughout our readings tonight. The prophet Isaiah says that the child to be born will be the prince of what? The prince of peace. In fact, of the increase of peace, there will be no end. And the angels proclaim to the shepherds in our very familiar gospel reading from Luke that there's going to be peace on earth. Of course, what is peace? 
We know in some real sense, of course, it means not war. The Hebrew word for peace is still used as a greeting today in the Middle East. It's shalom. When you say shalom to someone, when you say peace, certainly what we do even on Sundays, when we say peace of Christ be with you, what we are actually saying is I hope everything is whole in your life. That's what shalom means. That's what peace means, wholeness. Of course it means no war, but it also means I hope you have no want. It also means I hope that your relationships are healthy, that you are healthy in body and in soul, that your life is full, that you have joy and purpose and meaning, that everything in your life is as is it should be. That is the biblical meaning of the word shalom or peace. And of course, we know ever since Adam and Eve's fall in the garden back in the ancient past, we know, in fact, I don't even really have to pull the audience to know that we all know we are not whole. There's something that we know we must have, that we need to have, something that is timeless and eternal, and we have to grab onto it, or life has no meaning or purpose, and yet it is always out of reach. It's what drives the workaholic. It's what drives the the utopian. It's what animates the longing in the poet. It's what the lover is looking for when they catch the eyes of the one that they long for. It's the high that every addict is chasing. It is the safety that every frightened person demands. Really, it's our longing for God himself, for the eternal one himself, for us to be wrapped back into his perfect life, to let ourselves be forgotten in the torrent of his selfless and self-giving delight, to forget our needs, to forget our insecurities, to let go of our fears and our failings, and to be taken up in the perfect dance of God's love and delight, which is unending joy, unending wholeness, unending light, In short, we want to be united again to what we were made to share in and to have. Life eternal. That's what we want at Christmas. That's what I want at Christmas. Nothing less than God himself. To touch the untouchable realities. To have the spiritual perfectly joined to the physical. We want what we lost. We want what we have been longing for ever since the fall. Tim has mentioned throughout Advent that his Advent muse is the southern um, novelist Flannery O'Connor. My Advent muse is the English poet W.H. Auden, and he wrote a Christmas oratorio called For the Time Being back, I think it was 1941, so in the middle of the World War II. And in this long poem, and it is a long poem, and it is in some ways sort of like a self-flagellation every time I read it, every time Advent comes, because it's intensive and it's hard to get through. And yet in this poem, he wrestles with the idea of Jesus being born right now into our modern world in all of its bureaucratic, scientific, materialistic, industrialistic realities. And every year I read this poem, I find some deeper truth about the transcendent reality of what we are celebrating this very hour. He begins this poem with a lament. A lament that the world has grown, that the world has grown old, that an age is coming to an end, 
that death for everyone is a present reality that we cannot escape. There's a chorus that cries out at the end of the introduction of this poem that says, We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? How could the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. You see what Auden is saying about Christmas? What we need to save us is the eternal God himself becoming a part of our vulnerable, broken, finite world. To come into our corruption and loss and repair it with his purity and with his wholeness. But how can that happen? How can an eternal God become a finite fact? We certainly can't make it happen. But that is in fact the impossibility that the Christian faith confesses every year at this time and at this hour in what we are celebrating this very evening. You see the names for this child in Isaiah chapter 9, our Old Testament reading? This child to be born is very clearly going to become a ruler. He's going to become a king. He's going to sit on David's throne. The government, it says, is going to be set upon his shoulders. But the names that he has given, the names that the people are going to call him, these are not king names. These are God names. These are the names that God reserves for himself and is used for him elsewhere in Scripture. This child isn't being called a mighty ruler or a mighty warrior. He is called the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, the one who brings wholeness. In other words, what Isaiah was promising in Isaiah chapter 9, what we read about in Luke 2, is that he This child being born is the impossibility that we desperately need. He is the place where all our longing is actually met. He's the joining place between God and man, heaven and earth. It's exactly what the shepherds say. Sorry, it's exactly what the angels say to the shepherds. The shepherds may have said it later, but certainly they heard it first from the angels. Right? Heaven breaks into the night sky before the shepherds here. And what do they sing? Glory to God in the highest. Praise and honor to God in the highest place, they say. Well, what is the highest place? Heaven itself, contrasted with the earth. And what is coming to the earth? Peace, wholeness among those with whom God is pleased. The eternal joined to the finite. Heaven and earth, glory and peace. And all in this child, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, the beginning of of the remaking of all things. Later on, and for the time being, Auden writes this. He says, And because of his visitation, he means, of course, Jesus' birth, and because of his visitation, we may no longer desire God as if he were lacking. Our redemption is no longer a question of pursuit, but of surrender to him who is always and everywhere present. Therefore, at every moment we pray that following him, we may depart from our anxiety into his peace. That's the answer to our second question. How do we get this thing, this eternal reality, God himself, the divine life that we demand in the very depths of our soul, how do we get it? Surrender. Surrender to the one who is the ground for all our longings. Tim, at the five, which I was at, and I assume also at the three, in which he also spoke in his homily, 
talked about surrender as surrender being the very ground and experience of faith. Faith is an act of surrender. Surrendering to the one who brings peace. To the one who can make you whole. To the one that you are meant for. And tonight, at this hour, we remember that that one has actually come. Not as a phantom, not as a dream, not as a good idea, but as a finite fact. He has not held himself back from you. He has not held himself back from me, from the world. He has opened the door to us all. That's what Titus is talking about in our New Testament reading. Christ has appeared, bringing salvation to all, reuniting us to the eternal truth. And he is now training us. You see that word there? Training us into the way of godliness, into the way of wholeness, the way of peace. You know, everyone who is in training, if you want to really be trained, what do you have to do? You have to surrender. You have to submit to the one who is training you and teaching you. You have to give yourself over to their direction if you're ever going to truly learn what you are being taught. You will never learn, of course, if you insist on doing it your own way. As we surrender, we begin to live, as Titus says, godly lives in this present age. Lives that find all their desires and longings ultimately met in him. Lives that, as verse 14 says, are being purified by him to become people who are zealous or eager to do good, to be, in other words, people who create peace, who make the world around them more whole. That is what he is doing in their lives of all those that he has drawn to him and who surrender their lives to him in faith. And that is why Isaiah says that the increase of his peace, there will be no end because he comes to govern in the lives of individuals throughout the world. Your life, my life, in the life of your neighbor four streets down from you that you do not even know, of a cop who is running his beat somewhere on a street in Austin today, of the Chinese factory worker working right now in China, of an African cobalt miner, of kings and slaves and everywhere in between. See, the fascinating thing about this scope of Luke 2 here in our New Testament reading It begins with the history makers, doesn't it? It begins with Caesar Augustus. It begins with Quirinius. It begins with the important, powerful, special people. And then at the end of this passage, when the eternal has come and become a finite fact, to whom is that proclaimed to? To the shepherds watching their flock. To the man on the street. To the one, they're not named. It's not Caesar. It's not Quirinius. It's the shepherds. They don't even get names in the history books. But because it's proclaimed to them, it makes the power of Rome, it makes the power of the powerful in any age ultimately empty. For here tonight, Christ comes to everyone. And in Christ, the Caesars and the shepherds and you and me, we must submit For we all become simply wanderers looking into the glory of heaven while angels announce God's great salvation and our real and our future peace. So be at peace this evening. The world may not be yet.
Your family may not be yet. You may not in this life find the wholeness that your soul longs for. But because of this hour long ago, you may have peace with what your soul ultimately wants, with God himself, with the eternal Father. And you can surrender to his love And you can embrace the realities behind all your desires and your life can begin to fall into its proper place for he has come to you. The eternal has become a finite fact. All that he has promised will come good. What he has said will be fulfilled. For on that child, laying in a manger, on him really is laid the governing of the entire world. He's the prince of peace. And of the increase of his peace, and in this world, and in this life, there will be no end. For the finite things of this world, you and me, we will also be wrapped into the infinite and eternal, because Christ himself was first wrapped in finite flesh. And to his eternal wholeness, you can be connected right now. And there is a day coming, and if you are in Christ, that day has already begun in your own soul in which the promise of that Christmas village and the idealistic hope within it will ultimately be realized when all will be set right and all will be made safe. Or as Titus says, our blessed hope, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he will appear again in glory. And then he will make you fully his own. And then he will remove the brokenness And the lawless things will clean the dirt off all things. He will look you in the eyes and unite you to the warm light of God's very own divine life. My friends, that day is coming. Because this day came as a finite fact so many years ago. And that day came because God kept his own word that he gave thousands of years before that. That the world that the word would become flesh and that this child to be born would save the frail and longing human race and that he would rebuild the things that are broken. For he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And life can be found in him. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would give yourself fully to us. And even as we come now to your table, and even as we come to commune with you in this holy and sacred moment, we pray that you would be near us, you would fulfill the longings in our hearts and in our souls, that you would enable us, even this night, to surrender ourselves to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.